Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Degaina Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Roxanne Prasniak about her new book, Sudden Appearances, The Mongol Turn in Commerce, Belief, and Art, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2019. Dr. Prasniak, welcome to the show. Thank you, Degaina. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you began the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in transcultural studies of China and Eurasia, and specifically in the Mongol Empire? Sure. Um, I think I've always carried a kind of transcultural sensibility and curiosity about just about how things work. Um, My family was Eastern European. Slovakian, which is sort of central and marginal at the same time. Uh, I grew up in kind of an ambiguous social class, lower social, not neither lower nor middle, but again, ambiguous. I also grew up in a neighborhood in Chicago, which was incredibly diverse. It was an immigrant neighborhood. And I think, you know, from that point forward, I just carried this understanding of a world that was so diverse um, economically, ethnically, and and not only diverse, but very complex. And of course, that didn't all register as a seven-year-old, but um, somehow it, 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 was a, it was very formative for me. So that when I was writing this book on the Mongol era, uh, it took me a good eight, nine years. And I often sat and wondered what it was that was sustaining me through it. Because I had, you know, just a tremendous energy to return whenever I could from classes or raising my son to um, sit down and do the next bit of this. And it really was was quite substantial. So I think, um, yeah, I, I think that that's a big part of my, my motivation. Yeah, I guess I could say something about the transition to the, the book itself. Um. I was always interested in comparative history as well. And so because I trained in Chinese history for my doctorate, um, comparative history initially usually meant looking at the uh, Chinese side of the, the cultural historical legacy and setting that alongside of you know what I knew of um, European developments. And after I finished my second book on rural China, I was looking for a topic, and I, I realized that um, I realized that I really had this this kind of two ends of the continent, and didn't know very much about the middle. And it seemed the middle was uh, was it, it was a not only a kind of a blank spot in our educational. Uh, curriculum, 
but something that was seen as just sort of a bridge through or a passageway. And these just didn't ring right for me. So I decided that I wanted to look at the whole of this continent. And um, that's what led me back to the Mongol Empire, because it gave me a starting point from my training in Chinese history. Um, so my familiarity with, with Europe and uh, the Mongol era was all about that whole continent. So it was, and I knew that it was going to take a lot of retooling on my part, which is one reason that it took so long to, to do this work. Um, it took retooling in terms of uh, some languages. It took retooling in terms of fields because I decided to do this study through through art and art history, which again I had some training in, but it was um, I had to really step that up a lot. And then, of course, uh, the whole history of this Central Central Asian region was something else that I needed to do. All of which I'm not certain would have happened if I hadn't met Professor Thomas Olson who is, you know, one of the, was, he, he died last year, um, you know, one of the premier scholars in these studies of transcultural history and the Mongol Empire in particular. So he kind of took me under his wing, and for years we had conversations that, you know, in terms of what I should be reading and what sources I should be looking at, I, you know, conferences and other things helped, but it was really, it was really quite a huge project that I stepped into. And again, what sustained me and kept me going through it all is partly a mystery to me. It was fascinating. I think the complexity, uh, the curiosity about how things worked was just, um, just endless. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's definitely true that um, the center part, right, Central Eurasia and Central Asia, um, there hasn't been a lot of um, scholarship on it, so thank you for you know contributing to to this field. Um, and can you maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book? Um, yes, I okay. So I I was looking for another project. I I knew I wanted to do something with art. I'd always sort of been a little bit of an art historian in my teaching, um, and. After I was in between projects, really, and spending a lot of time in Italy and Siena, where I also did some teaching. And as I had mentioned to you earlier, I was actually supposed to be at this time this year. Um, and I came across a mural, a painting, a fresco by Ambrosio Lorenzetti called The Martyrdom of the Franciscans. This was really a fascinating image. It's basically uh, his representation of a court scene out in uh, Mongolia, in the, around the town of uh, Amalik. And he created this partly out of what he knew, partly out of his imagination. And because I had spent... Because I was, you know, done my my work mostly from the Chinese perspective, I started immediately to think about, wow, you know, what are the what are the contexts around this art? 
within Italian art history, it had a narrative. But I started becoming very curious about what if you what if you put it in its larger context of what was going on literally across the whole continent? You know, how far would that go? What kind of perspective would that add to what we already know about this piece, what we already um, know about the, the that period in Italian art history? So I took it from there and said, not only is this piece of art at this time produced in this larger context of the Mongol Empire, but any anything else was at the period time was also, um, you know, had that recontextualization issue that I thought would be I was very curious about and that I thought would be a very productive line of inquiry. It wasn't it wasn't intended to you know challenge or anything the art the art historians. Uh, who have other questions that they raise about their work, um, but it was intended to add to that discussion. And I'm really pleased that I think when I started out, I was it was most concerned about art historians <laughs> and um, you know the kind of suspicions, rightly so, sometimes that they have about historians who take art and um, don't treat it as art, but you know treat it as a historical artifact. And I was very, you know, I was very um, aware of that and very attentive to trying to do both, which again, added to the complexity, but um, it was my goal. And I was very pleased that one of my first, the first times I was asked to, to talk about this book was um, out of the art history department at Rice University. So I guess, uh, I guess some of it worked at least. Oh, thank you. Um, it's definitely a really interesting kind of approach, um, looking from arts and art objects um, at these transcultural exchanges, right? Um, let's maybe start um, the, our discussions right into the books itself um, by discussing the title. Uh, so Sudden Appearances is the title, and the book mainly, uh, mainly focuses on the 13th century, so starting with the military expansions of the Mongols in 1206 and closing with the fall of the Great Yuan Empire in 1368. Um, so what were these sudden appearances that your book refers to that took place during this period? Okay, um... Sudden appearances, again, in, the, in a lot of the art history literature, um, whether you're looking at Iranian art or Italian art, um, Yon, art of the Yon period, you have art, art historians who will note a change either in subject, subject matter, style, materials, motifs. And uh, I noticed in a lot of this literature that the explanation was just let go of it was a, a sudden appearance. <laughs> and, and again, as historian, my question was, um, well, how did that happen? Um, it, you know, what was it connected to in, in terms of the political environment, the social environment, um, the awareness of the world, the awareness of artistic um, creations that were coming into into these regions through a period of trans you know transcultural change. 
a lot of it through the economic and diplomatic networks at the time as well. So tracing some of that um, in terms of the sudden appearances. And then, uh, again, I think um, it can't be underestimated that the major first appearance here is the first global era where under the Mongol Empire, the entire continent uh, is very suddenly uh, in contact. This was in, you know, entirely, entirely new. You'd had regions in Central and East Asia that had, had a lot of prior contact. They had something more of a, a common language in terms of diplomacy, uh, commercial exchange, art. But it was um, for the entire entire continent to, to have that kind of integration was a sudden new appearance. I'd have to also say that the second wave of Buddhism that came with the, the Mongol movement um, into Central and Western Eurasia was a sudden appearance that we usually forget about because the traces of this are largely gone. And I think it was one of the really uh, standout features that needs some more explanation. And again, this was a sudden, a second, a second wave, but the first one was third, fifth centuries, and therefore was not a part of immediate memory. And um, the fact that the Mongols brought Buddhism all the way into Eastern Anatolia is quite striking and in a very significant major way. Um, so another sudden appearance. Um, and then the Mongol turn um, in the subtitle of the book. Um, what are you kind of referring to here? Um, it seems that you're talking about um, Mongol interventions in Eurasian history, specifically in terms of commerce, belief, and arts. I guess you kind of talked about how during the Mongol Empire era, um, there was a kind of globalization or interconnection of interconnecting of the continents together and also the transmission of Buddhism beyond um, Asia. Um, but are there other um, kinds of Mongol intervention that were uh, significant during this period? Um, yes, in terms of commerce, and again, I think what I argue is, is that one of the distinctive features of the Mongol period is that they really they come to emphasize uh, commerce over other factors, such as religious belief or ethnicity. Um, it's a commercial empire, and it's partly a commercial empire for many reasons, but one is that they're a very small minority, and they had to figure out how to work with a lot of what they were inheriting. They had to figure out how to uh, do it by more or less peaceful peaceful means because otherwise it would it would undermine their their ability to to sustain that so um, one of the intervent so the main intervention is again to bring uh, to create an infrastructure a commercial infrastructure across this entire area so that uh, individuals that we're more familiar with, perhaps from the European side, like Marco Polo, are traveling across the entire continent. Um, uh, William of Rubric, who uh, sets out early and uh, to try and understand what this Mongol Empire is about, is uh, one of the first Europeans to encounter Buddhism in this era. 
and he records some of the you know some of his observations. He actually notes the the chant Mani Padmeam, and this is you know transmitted back in his reports to um, to Louis the Ninth and others. Um, and the others actually include Roger Bacon as well, who is very curious about what's happening out in this region. From their perspective, uh, the, this incredible shift that's taken place is suddenly to their east, there is a huge empire across the entire continent that they have never heard of before. They know nothing about. They know nothing about the rulers of, of uh, this new territory. And it was uh, more than sudden. I mean, it was it was a bit startling, and I think um, you know launched a, a lot of of um, thinking, reconsideration about some of their some of their own approaches to uh, theology, government, um, a number of things. At the same time, you have somebody like you know Robin Sama traveling from the Beijing area all the way into central. Uh, Central Eurasia to Tabriz, and from there actually going on to Rome and Paris, where he meets with uh, some of the uh, the nobility and also the churchmen in Paris, and actually I think conducts a, an Easter service so that they can see how it's done from his perspective. Robin Sama is a Church of the East Christian, um, so he has you know he has a slightly different different take on some aspects of that. So, I mean, you suddenly have, yeah, I mean, I guess to put it simply, you suddenly have the pos- the infrastructure, the possibility, the motivation for individuals like uh, William of Rubric to go all the way to uh, one side of the continent and Robin Sama to come and end up uh, in Rome and Paris for a while. It's really quite amazing in terms of the, the intervention and the, um, the spin-offs from that. And I think one of the shifts is you know, a reorganization, a, a commercial reorganization that emphasize, comes to emphasize that central Eurasian era, uh, area. Um, we, we sometimes cast this in terms of East and West because of writers like Marco Polo. But I think the intervention is actually a reorganization around Central Eurasia, uh, which is really um, um, you know, quite quite significant. In terms of the art, the intervention, it's uh, again the movement of, of artistic conventions from Buddhism uh, across the area into Byzantium, into uh, the artistic traditions that are emerging in the, in the Western, Western Eurasian uh, lands of the Europeans. Um, and the intervention in terms of, of just the sheer number of artistic works that are produced, including a lot of illustrated manuscripts, so across the whole region, illustrated manuscripts become a sudden new uh, focus for artistic production. And because it's a commercializing uh, environment where you have a lot of opportunities and the rise of, of um, other additional commercial groups, 
they have the they have the resources to commission some of these, and so it just the whole it it, it kind of um, begins to transform the whole uh, commercial artistic uh, culture as well. It becomes a bit more commercial, and it also um, becomes it's much more um, it's much more. Mm, let's see, it's it's popularized to a, a great extent, so that you have new social groups outside of the church and the nobility kind of beginning to acquire and give meaning to these these artistic um, products. Thank you for laying down that um, the groundwork for um, uh, later discussions and contextualizing this. Um, and unlike many other works on the Mongol Empire, right, your book um, uses an investigation of transcultural arts uh, to understand the significance of the Mongol era developments. We kind of briefly talked about this at the beginning of the uh, podcast interview. Um, so what kind of new questions can be asked with this kind of approach uh, using arts and what kind of new readings um, or ideas can be revealed? Um. I think the main question, the main new question, is um, what happens if you take a work of art produced in Siana, produced in Tabriz, in Cairo, uh, and you place it in its larger Eurasian context? What happens if, in addition to what you know about the, the local uh, artistic conventions and the local political culture, um, what else do you gain by putting that work in its its larger context, which in fact it exists? So, in a way, um, it opens up part of the context that we already know about, but I think it also opens up some additional questions. Uh, so I'm not setting it up as you've got local and you know beyond local, because obviously the the transcultural is is also making it's permeating the local. It's not as though there's a there's a divide there. And beyond that, I think the question is, you know, how did local and regional artistic conventions dialogue with what were perceived to be the uh, the signifiers of wealth and power? Because basically, with the rise of the Mongol Empire. Um, the Mongols were setting the standard, and whatever uh, whatever the signifiers of, of wealth and power were, everybody was trying to figure out what their relationship was to it. Not to necessarily adopt it wholesale, for sure, but to be able to um, be modern in the sense to be able to be to have something in your you know your own tradition that was uh, that also indicated your awareness of what was um, what was what was new in terms of um, what was new in, in terms of status and what um, you know individuals groups were aspiring to I think when you do that uh, you get another set of questions you see that there's a there's an integrative impulse that's that starts to stand out when you when you look at that, uh, Eurasian context, and the integrative impulse shows up in the way textiles are used or represented, 
the way pigments are selected and used, access to pigments, uh, styles, motifs, they all kind of, you know, they, you, you start to see some of these elements across these different venues and it raises questions about what's being adopted and what's being selected and why, uh, what's being rejected and why. Um, again, how are, how are different regions joining what is this, this kind of transcultural conversation uh, in, in terms of artistic representation? I think you also get, you get questions about that East-West narrative that I mentioned. And instead, it shifts to a narrative of circulation, um, an analysis of recontextualization. And so the questions, the questions kind of move into, into that area. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, like you said, images and, and arts um, objects can definitely tell us more nuanced stories, right, um, in addition to text. Um, and centering on Tabriz, right, as the organizing principle um, in the mapping of 13th century Eurasian arts, um, your book um, actually traces a network of cultural and commercial exchanges that involved seven other centers spanning the Eurasian continent, including Tabriz. Um, so in addition to Tabriz, um, you also included places like Constantinople, Siena, uh, Dadu, uh, which is the new capital of the Yuan Ulus and the political center of the Mongol Empire, uh, Cairo, Turfan, Ochi, and Quanzhou in southern China. Um, so how were these locations uh, chosen for your research project? Well, I knew that Tabriz would be the center and that that would be one of the major shifts that I was I was suggesting with this work. Uh, and Tabriz, Tabriz stood out for many reasons. Uh, and I think if I had to pinpoint one, it was the fact that First world history is written during this time in Tabriz, and it's written out of the workshop of Rashida Dean, and it's an illustrated manuscript. So, in other words, Rashida Dean had access to materials that allowed him to write a world history. Uh, it allowed him access to artists. They were in Tabriz. They were attracted to Tabriz. Many of them came from the religious orders. Um, we don't know a great deal about specific individuals at all. But the, the fact of this illustrated world history uh, and the fact that it was produced in Tabriz and not, for example, in Dadu, which is definitely the political center of the empire, suggested to me that the, the cultural and commercial um, uh, you know, transfer through Tabriz was definitely a, a core that was, um, was worth looking at. So I built, I built um, the selection around Tabriz. And then, and some of the themes that I had begun to see um, in, terms, in terms of the, yeah, some of the themes that I began to see at that point. So I needed, I needed some coverage that gave an indic. Basically, the selection was where are things happening, where the art is both uh, innovative, 
showing these little signs of sudden appearances in various ways, and at the same time, uh, in an integrative, where you see an effort to, um, you know, develop some of the, some common themes as well as just the materiality and the stylistic elements of the of the art. Um, Sienna and Cairo are both both outliers of in terms of the empire. Neither one of them is never incorporated into the empire. They uh, exist outside Siena being a case of an effort to find some kind of positive relationship. Um, the both artistically, religiously, and commercially, all three. Uh, Cairo remains uh, outside and more hostile, but in relationship to Tabriz. There's the issue of competition over, you know, who will who will be the next major center to speak for Islam after the fall of Baghdad. Um, Constantinople and the, the dwindling Byzantine Empire had a very, uh, very clear relationship political, artistic, intellectual, to Tabriz. Uh, Turfan and Alci are both uh, in, mostly in, in connection with the Buddhist, the Buddhist trajectory. Both of them, again, have clear ties back to Tabriz. Uh, Alci in Ladakh is a territory that is... Um, something of a, of a protectorate early on and where they're continuing religious and um, religious, let's see, religious and commercial ties, land-holding ties. Uh, Turfan, the, the Uyghur population from Turfan plays an incredibly huge role in both the transmission of Buddhism of course, there's earlier connections in the transmission of Buddhism between the Alji Ladakh area and Turfan. So I had to weave, you know, I had to pick places that were central at the time in the 13th century in terms of the relationship to what was going on in Tabriz and the Mongol Empire, and um, also areas where uh, there was artwork that showed these this, this kind of uh, innovative approach, integrative approach, historical historical approach as well. Uh, Dadu, of course, the center, political center of the Mongol Empire. But then this is very interesting because, you know, the, the Mongol Empire in East Asia under the uh, Dayuan was not consolidated for almost a good two decades after uh, after Tabriz is designated the capital of the Ilhanate by the first Ilhan Huligu. So in a way, you know, even and and the struggle the struggle to um, govern to capture and govern that territory just went on for a very long time. Uh, Chuanzhou, uh, uh, I needed, I needed a, um, a place that would represent the sea connections back to Tabriz because they were very critical, very important. And again, 
This is something we don't often think of when we look at just the Mongol Empire, although there's there's more literature all the time that, that is filling this out. Um, but initially, it's thought of as a landed empire. And I think one of the, with the art, um, one of the things that became very clear was that these, these connections through Chuanzhou, uh, the transmission routes back into central Eurasia, and then in both directions to east and west, uh, included a lot of a lot of interconnectedness with with Chuanzhou. So, you know, there could have perhaps been other places. There could have been more places. Eight was quite a bit to to manage, uh, but it did. I, I think it 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 at least set out the scaffolding to begin to think about some of these questions. And I really do see this whole project is just, you know, an initial initial effort to put something out there to think about further. Um, and, and so, yes, other, other areas, other questions that would come into play by bringing other regions into the picture would be really very, very good to see someone do. Not myself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But I think it's, it's really fascinating how you pick these uh, eight places. They're kind of unexpected, but I think you make a great case in the book that there are actually um, key locations, right, in the story that you're telling. Um, so can you maybe tell us a little bit about how these eight places were interconnected um, in the 13th century? In what ways were they connected? Okay, well, they all had, they all had diplomatic, um, commercial, and, uh, and artistic connections. So uh, Siena, for example... Um, there are there are individuals from Siena working in the court in Tabriz. Uh, again, we don't know a lot about them, but we know enough to verify a few and to know that that connection is there and that information and and are are moving the information is moving back and forth there. Constantinople, lots of evidence of of uh, connection to. Tabriz scholars from Constantinople uh, sent maintained in Tabriz by uh, Rashid Adin and others in uh, you know workshop uh, settings where they're they're given stipends to stay there as scholars and work um, scholars from Constantinople also down in Mariga south of Tabriz. Mariga, the observatory, which was, again, the premier uh, astronomical observatory of the period and uh, drew a lot of scholars and attention. From Dadu, you know, particular scholars, uh, Rashid Adin, again, in Tabriz, plays a major role here. He was very interested in uh, everything in the Chinese uh, Tradition, philosophy, medicine, agriculture. He brought he brought a lot of specialists, artists uh, from that area in order to work on some of his projects in Tabriz. That also included uh, an incredible a medical facility uh, and a, a huge experimental garden. Um, Turfan, uh, the Uyghur population. 
were specialists. They were specialists in governing. They were specialists who uh, mostly hailed at this point from a, a Buddhist tradition. So they also brought some of that scholarship. The scholars from the Alti Ladakh Kashmir area, you know that it was Kashmiri artists and specialists who uh, Ilhan Hulagu first brought to the Tabriz area when he was establishing his uh, early early Buddhist compounds complexes. The one of the largest of which was at Labna Sagut, it just to the northeast of Tabriz, northwest of Tabriz. Uh, which was, again, a magnificent facility with temples and libraries and uh, uh, educational centers. And he drew, he drew extensively on um, Buddhist specialists from monks from, from Dadu, as well as Turfan, but also uh, Kashmir and Alchi. Um, the connection between Tabriz and Chuanzhou is, is actually also very extensive. A lot of the trade that went down from Tabriz to Basra through the Persian Gulf out into what we would, would call the Indian Oceans today and around to um, the area of Chuanzhou in the southern Yuan territories carried uh, you know, tremendous diversity of Merchant activity, uh, and with that merchant activity, missionary activity, and with the missionary activity, usually some of the religious artifacts that would include uh, works of art, whether they were paintings of the Madonna and Child or um, items that were used in church services and so forth. So the integration is really extensive. and and looking and keeping Tabriz as the center really organizes it. And again, the organization could be could be challenged, but it's a um, I see it as kind of a first effort to get a hold of what is an incredible amount of of information and, and complexity, and make it thinkable, and and then refine it beyond that, or again adjust it. Uh, so that's the that's the uh, the way in which I think these places were interconnected in the 13th century. Thank you um, for clarifying that. And let's maybe go into some of the uh, fascinating and amazing artworks um, that you kind of discussed in detail in the book. Um, so in the book, you have observed that the 13th century produced an ascendant materialism and intervisuality that emphasized human agency. Right, um, in these images produced during this period, um, can you give us a few example artworks from these eight locations that demonstrates um, these points? Sure. So, the materialism, individuality, and human agency uh, all speak to a new emphasis across this, this territory on portraiture, for one thing. And on uh, historical historical awareness, so almost writing, you know, that the art becomes uh, part of the historical thinking. And I guess to uh, to just add something here, 
along these lines, one of the one of the interventions, one of the turns that came with this this kind of uh, transcontinental infrastructure was an aware a, ge- a new geographic awareness, a new geographic awareness where uh, people were aware suddenly aware of parts of the world that they 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 were really kind of blank blank slates before. And I think one of the consequences of the Mongol era is that even though the empire eventually fell and other uh, you know, stages of this came after, uh, that never went away. That never went away. It's like culturally, historically, it was, it was not, you could, we could withdraw from it a bit or you could, you could try and extend it further. But, um, you know, the, the eastern end of the continent would never again be aware, you know, forget that there were these central and western regions. Um, and the same thing for uh, for the center and, and the western part. So that the geographic awareness, I think, is is something that I wanted to mention that is a real game changer here as well. And with that geographic arrange, rearrangement comes the question of, well, what's what's our relationship to it? And that's where the the you know this new emphasis on history and human agency uh, comes into play, I think. So that in terms of the materialism, because this was a commercial empire, and because art was was part of the commercial exchange, uh, you also get this situation where some artists begin to try and represent this in their work. And it shows up in a, in a kind of uh, integration of subject matter themes, materials. So let me just quickly say a couple of things about something like Simona Martini's Annunciation and the way he portrays the cloak of St. Gabriel. Um, he paints it entirely in a fabric known as Najish, which was the premier uh, gold brocade fabric produced uh, by the Mongols out of the Mongol workshops for the elite, and it was the you know the, the top of the uh, top of the line treasured textile. And so Simona Martini is obviously aware of this in this transcontinental exchange. He's seen some of this material because when you put a, a when you put a, a, a picture of the material next to his actual painting, it, it, it's identical. I mean, he's got the pattern, he's got um, the reflection of light and, and so forth. Um, so that's some of the material exchange of the period kind of moving into, into, the, into the art. And it was very difficult for him to do that. He had to... Uh, he had to develop whole new painting techniques in order to get the effect that he wanted. Um, I mean, the human agency here is that you have Gabriel uh, who, wearing this the the cloak that one of the Mongol you know rulers at court in a very um, you know high official capacity um, might wear or might give as one of the ultimate gifts to a loyal supporter. And here it's integrated into a religious theme. It comes very much from the contemporary uh, material world. 
Um, in terms of another painting, if you look at the birth of Muhammad in Rashid Adin's Jamil Tavarik or Wang Zhengpang's uh, Mahaprajapata cradling the infant Buddha, you get two examples here where I think the, the artists were faced with the same problem of how to represent uh, these two scenes of children, very significantly, I think, these two scenes of children in a contemporary contemporary world, um, but to hold the you know the religious context as well. So Rashida Dean's work ends up being a you know borrowing quite heavily from the iconogra- uh, the um, iconography of Byzantine and uh, and Latin Christian. Uh, scenes that show the birth of Christ. Um, the Mahaprajapati scene is a, a fusion of Buddhist iconography and Christian Church of the East iconography, all of which, again, are moving through these diplomatic, commercial, missionary uh, networks as well. So it's not as though uh, in other words, anything created during this period is aware of this phenomenon, this, this phenomenal development, really, of this powerful, all powerful empire that, at the time, seemed it would, you know, it it was it was. I mean, nobody foresaw its end at this point, so it was the given reality, and the effort to. Um, to have a, a relationship to that, to set up a visual dialogue with that, while not losing, not losing your own, um, you know, your your own reference, your own cultural local reference points. So those are three there that that speak to that, and I think you can look, you can look at almost all of these um, with that kind of, of question in mind. The intervisuality again. Um, a, a, a concept that that speaks to placing each art, each piece of art, in its uh, horizontal local context, and then in its vertical context of the the translocal and also the historical. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think our readers um, and listeners alike should definitely get a copy of of the book because um, as these wonderful um, color plates um, included, you should really look at these images while listening to our discussion. (laughs) Yes, it does make it difficult. Yeah, so I'll just, I'll try and be be quicker in terms of uh, the next question so that, um, yeah, because they really do require the, the images as well. Yeah, um, um, there's so many clues, right, included in these wonderful images. Um, and sort of continuing on our conversation, under the Mongol Empire, um, you also know that there was a, a certain kind of religious inclusiveness, but also with uh, unintended secular overtones, as argued in the book. So what are some of the artworks that convey this kind of idea? Yeah, again, uh, with this this emphasis on portraiture, putting yourself in the picture, whether it's a, a religious picture, but putting yourself in the religious picture as, you know, as a historical actor, uh, this, this, start, this comes up. 
I think you see it in the the Korah church, um, the mosaic that has Maria of the Mongols. Uh, she's locate her position in this this mosaic is very curious in terms of just purely religious uh, iconography. Again, you, you need to, um, when you look at it, you'll see that she's a very small figure down in the right hand corner, but Christ and Mary and the other patron are all focused on her in, uh, very clearly. And so you have this religious painting, but it definitely has secular connotations. Her, her location in the, in the mosaic is based on her political role, her political ties, um, back to the court in Tabriz, where she lived for two decades uh, as one of the, um, the Ilhan's Hatuns. So, again, the, the secular, um, secular doesn't, it's, it hasn't broken loose, but it is, it is clearly a definable part uh, that you can, you can see in terms of, um, you know, just juxtaposing the, the typical iconography in which two patrons might be uh, there at the bottom of the mosaic, but not with that kind of, of attention. And she doesn't have the attention because of she's become a nun, but she doesn't have the attention because of anything uh, of, of her role, let's say, in the church, except as this this emissary far beyond just the the religious uh, connections to her, uh, you know, her her continuing diplomatic political ties, associations with, with Tabriz. In terms of portraiture, if we look at Anagi's, um, the portraits that are attributed to Anagi, the Tibetan artist, portraits of, of Kublai Khan and Chabi Khatun, um, you see Tibetan religious portraiture that is in the employ now, so to speak, of secular Mongol art in a Han Chinese dominated area. So again, uh, it, it moves out of the religious traditions, uh, but uh, Kublai and Shabi are not religious figures. They are, you know, they're presented as the premier rulers of the, of the Yuan territories here. So, it's a kind of, uh, it, the, the secular gets accentuated even when it's embedded in, either clearly embedded in relig- um, religious iconography or associated with traditions such as portraiture in the Tibetan case that, you know, were intended to, um, intended to underline religious uh, li- lineages and so forth. I, I think the secular part also shows up in the celebration of knowledge acquired from experience. And you see this, again, you see this in Roger Bacon, you see this in Rashida Dean, you see this in uh, Wang Dayuan, who was a, a geographer of the Yuan period. They're all very clear that their work is better than what's been received 
um, better than the, the classical text because it's based on uh, recently acquired knowledge. And again, that kind of human agency, that kind of, of uh, contemporary outlook in this new world that the Mongols have, have reordered and opened up as well. Um, you know, a, a, another secular overtone here is the emphasis on good government that emerges in a period when, in a period when uh, <clears throat> the sudden appearance of the Mongols kind of threw open the question of how did they do this, and uh, you know why? Not only how did they do this, but why weren't we more resistant to it? Or <clears throat> in the case of the European zone. Uh, you know, what do we need to be more resistant to it or to overcome it? Uh, the whole question of how to govern comes up. Lawrence Eddy's good government fresco, also in Siena, is is one of the one of the premier examples of this. There's also a, a mosaic on on taxation in the uh, the core church in Istanbul today, where the mosaic of Maria is. And the contemplation is the same question. You know, a good government involves some secular, it, it, it draws to the secular, it draws to the attention of secular issues, uh, not just, you know, um, not just the idea that, that somehow you can, you can rely on religious authority to, uh, you know, to produce good order. Uh, and again, that was more of a new idea back in the, the Western Eurasian European territories than it was um, in either Central or, or East Asia. But I think it's very interesting because it, it definitely it, it draws attention to how do you govern? How did, you know, yes, there's the religious component, there's the military component, but governing is, is something else. And a good government requires, um, you know, a, a, perhaps the thinking is a secular stance since the, the Mongols, both at Dadu and Tabriz, were very keen on having court discussions, court debates among religious figures. And this was truly novel Come if you were coming from, from Rome, for example, uh, where this wasn't a matter of debate. And yet out of that debate... You know, it allowed a governing, what was selecting what seemed most helpful for good governance. So the question gets put forward in a in a new way and with some new experience, some new data. Of this isn't just philosophy. The Mongols have done this. They are governing this um, remarkable, almost unbelievable empire. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um... I think a, a point that you really kind of emphasize through, throughout the book. Um, and lastly, um, you mentioned in the book that in addition to a kind of humanism, uh, 13th century Eurasian art also saw an attention to the natural phenomena, right, with representational realism. Uh, what kind of themes of nature were portrayed in these art? Yes, there are a lot of landscape elements. Um, you know, Lawrence Eddy's Good Government, Fresco that we just mentioned. Uh, has a, a remarkable uh, in, emphasis on on the rural areas and therefore the landscape. Um, and again, that has multiple sources. Um, there, I'm not claiming that that comes only from this larger 
uh, examination in the larger context. But I think some additional aspects of realism, some additional aspects of, you know, the secularism in terms of of taking uh, spiritual figures, Mary, Joseph, Christ child, and, and making them into a family um, that, you know, where Mary sits and knits while Jesus plays with the yarn. I mean, these kinds of, uh, kind of natural, uh, the, the kind of um, naturalism in terms of representation of human groups is part. But the landscape elements are also there. And so the, you know, the question, some more attention to that uh, is raised by this, this, this recontextualization. Rashida Dane and his illustrations for the Jamil Tavarik um, definitely draws on artistic traditions from the um, from the East Asian region there's Armenian Armenian uh, miniatures um, the representation of clouds animals water uh, natural effects rain snow again these are all these are all kind of showing up they're part of the sudden appearances as well where it's an effort to capture experience in real time, an effort to make it seem, you know, like it's here and now. It's not abstract. It's not just symbolic um, iconography. Um, and I think one of the interesting things here, too, that comes from, from this analysis is that Many of the elements, such as the you know um, formate the way clouds are are represented, the conventions for clouds and, and other other natural wind and so forth, the idea that that these in a lot of uh, the art history literature are referred to as simply Chinese, and I think what one of the things that this study does is to ask us to you know rethink or not think, not think in terms of those categories and see what happens. And one of the things that happens with the, nat- the landscape elements is that it becomes very apparent that a lot of these motifs and uh, uh, conventions really come much more out of the Buddhist tradition of, of painting that moves again from Alchi to Turfan and then east into, into the northern Chinese speaking areas. But that they're quite different from the Song Dynasty landscape art, which is which is kind of the premier landscape art that we think of when we think of Chinese um, landscape elements. And so there's a there's an interesting differentiation and complexity there that I think can be misleading unless, you know, unless we do make, make that, that observation. Um, so yeah, rethinking, rethinking um, some of those categories that are, you know, sort of contemporary geography laid on to the 13th century when in fact there wasn't an entity uh, called China. There was a dynasty of one, uh, or another, there wasn't an entity called India, you know, so forth. Things that are sort of obvious, but they uh, they still they still they're obvious, but they still work their way in to um, 
to this kind of analysis if you're not careful because it becomes so much more complex to not use those those kind of handy boxes for, for sorting things. Well, thank you. This is really interesting. I think this is a, a great point to maybe um, stop our discussions on the book um, at this point um, that you made, you know, by looking at the art, by looking at all these um, different portrayals of, of, of human agency and also the natural phenomena that it's probably wise to overlook a lot of the categories that we're used to using, right? Um, so before we wrap up our podcast discussion today, we have one final question for you. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about your current projects? Um, what are some of the things that you're working on now? Yes. Well, while I was going through the art for this project, I became very interested in music as a trace element through through the same um, you know, cultural political landscape. Um, there, in images, in narratives, um, popular and court court music. Uh, so my next project is to is to see if uh, what works when how that works in terms of trying to identify uh, the way music was was part of the transcultural exchange during this period. That, however, has sort of been put on hold during our pandemic because it's it's difficult to to get around and and do these things. Um, so in the meantime, uh, I've decided that I'm going to write a novel. And the novel is going to be a, about Maria of the Mongols. She was one of my favorite characters in, in this last book. And there was relatively little known about her, but what was known was very, um, very intriguing. So... My sweetheart and I are currently separated because of the pandemic also. He's in southern France, and I'm here in Eugene, Oregon. And we've decided that we're going to co-author this. He's a wonderful storyteller. <laughs> and for me, it allows me, to take, it allows me to take one of my historical figures and let her step out of the confines of a historical study. Whereas, you know, you're always limited uh, in terms of what you can uh, are allowed to imagine by your, you know, limited by your sources. It also allows me to weave together some of the feminine threads that, that really move through the whole book and that surfaced as I was working. And um, they're there and they're pretty well developed. But I would like to continue to think those through also. Because in our contemporary situation of this global pandemic that we have, I think, you know, we're all feeling that we missed something, that, that there's a layer that uh, we haven't been fully cognizant of, and we have little bits and pieces of it. And I think that there might be something to glean in this earlier period, what, uh, you know, is legitimately called the first global era. And Maria moved through all of that. She moved through all of that. And I guess I, I want to see how that turns out. So I'm curious to, we'll see how it goes. Wow, fascinating. I'm, I'm, 
I'm really blown away by this specific art piece too. When I'm when I was reading your book, and wow, just learning that you're going to be writing a novel about her, I'm really excited to uh, to read it when it comes out. Well, it's perfect. I mean, because my southern France, it's like when I'm sleeping, he's awake, and vice versa. So one of us always gets to be working on it, and we just pass it back and forth. It's become a true, yeah. It's become it's become just wonderful because otherwise, as you know, it's this is a really horribly stressful time. Well, um, I'm sure our listeners will be looking forward to uh, reading this new work too, and definitely your also uh, your other um, projects on music. That will be another, I think, really innovative approach to to the study of of Central U Asia and and also Asia. Well, thank you so much for you know taking the time to speak with us today amidst this global pandemic, and uh, we really appreciate um, your time. And I had a wonderful time reading your book, so thank you. Thank you, Diana, very much. It's been a true pleasure. <laughs>